Hello. Hello, I can hear you now. How are you? Good, good, good. You're even clearer. Fantastic. Hey, so I'm, I'm thinking, and let me know if you have uh, any different ideas, but I thought what we would talk about is a little bit of everything. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about your memory of Bendigo at some point and, uh, and your experiences over the last three years since your diagnosis, but then also your advocacy work and a little bit on the app, which sounds really interesting too. So they'd all be things I'd be happy to have a chat about if you are. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to Inside HIV, the podcast for positive people. Made possible thanks to the Victorian AIDS Council, VAC, working together, and Vive Healthcare, Positive Action Community Grants. Follow on Twitter at HIV Podcast and like us on Facebook. I am 45. I just had to think about that briefly, but yes, no, 45. <laughs> 45, fantastic. The reason I asked first, I guess, is because you know, I start to do the, the reverse maths and, and, and work out when you were born. And I guess since we're in the lead up to AIDS Day, growing up 45 years ago onwards, you know, what sort of role or impact did, uh, did the words HIV AIDS or the acronym HIV AIDS have in your life until recently? Well, I vividly recall being about 14 or 15 years old and watching uh, 60 Minutes on a Sunday night and on came the Grim Reaper ad. And uh, it must have been around the same time I was also reading Rock Hudson's biography and my grandmother said, what on earth are you reading that for? And I said, he's a movie star. Get over it. Uh, and um, so, uh, the, but that, that Grim Reaper ad stuck in my mind. And, and I also, you know, there were reports on the news every other night about um, HIV. But it was something that was sort of over there, you know, on the other side of the planet in, in New York or, or in San Francisco. It certainly wasn't something that I'd put into a local context um, being a kid from Bendigo. But I, you know, I was thinking about uh, that young fellow in Queensland, Tyson, who um, took his life last weekend or last week. And I thought, you know, that was me um, growing up in Bendigo. That was me to a T every single day getting bullied for being a fag, being a poof. I remember the first day at prep at Gravel Hill Primary School, I was called a poof. And it happened every single day relentlessly, including the spitting and the bashing and the kicking and the, the whole thing every single day of my entire existence at school in Bendigo. And it certainly made me far more resilient and, and the person who I am today. And in a way, I'm kind of grateful for that. But no other kid should have to go through that bullshit. And um, it, it just really came home to me seeing uh, the news of that young fellow in Queensland um, and just how tragic that is. Um, it mm. just shouldn't, shouldn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I guess you soon enough left Bendigo behind. Were you uh, in your late teens or early 20s when you, you shifted? I moved after finishing at Bendigo High School, uh, year 12, um, uh, where I was the 
only male to study fashion design and textile design in the 25-year history of that particular course at that school uh, and passed with flying colours and got into RMIT to study uh, fashion design there. And I was... uh, I was young because I was always a young baby right through uh, all of my schooling. So I think I was 17 um, when I first moved to Melbourne. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, it really must have taken a lot of um, resilience and inner strength to to make through those first 17 years. Was there always a sense that that the city was a light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, I always grew up, and I think a lot of Bendigo kids back then grew up with the understanding that as soon as you finished high school, you would move on. Um, I I certainly grew up with that understanding uh, and that I would be heading somewhere and it would be somewhere other than staying in Bendigo. So um, that, whilst it was a huge uh, upheaval, it was also something that was just a given uh, and I was so pleased to be coming to Melbourne to be doing something that I really, really wanted to do. Uh, I got into the course that I wanted to get into, and uh, it then, you know, it was like a whole new world. You know, that, that whole it gets better thing um, mm. happened the day after my final day at high school. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so it was a, a sudden and appreciated transformation. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Hey, what? Uh, I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. What came first for you, sort of interest and in advocacy in the HIV sector or a diagnosis of HIV in your own life? Uh, no, the diagnosis didn't happen until much later. Um, mm. My interest in and advocacy for HIV started... Well, indirectly, in that I, I was working uh, at a at Three Faces at the Gay Night Club, and mm-hmm. uh, you know I started experiencing friends uh, becoming positive and um, uh, nursing friends who were going through a seroconversion. Um, you know, I've, I've sat with and counselled dozens, literally dozens, of my friends who were. Um, newly diagnosed and when I was about 33 uh, I found myself uh, in a relationship with uh, a guy who was also positive and and I was negative and so um, that really was um, a a wonderful experience in that um, you know for me it wasn't an issue and it never has been an issue because I'd always had friends who were positive and I'd been there for so many people who were undergoing um, or or dealing with their diagnosis. Um, So the Victorian AIDS Council at the time asked me to be a part of a new project, which was a groundbreaking project at the time. It's still running, actually. It's called Staying Negative, and it was a campaign to encourage uh, negative people to stay negative. And they wanted uh, a story from someone who was in a zero-different relationship, in a positive-negative relationship, um, like the one I was in. And so I uh, agreed to be a part of uh, the rollout of this brand-new campaign and um, told my my story. And that was sort of the start of me connecting directly to, I guess, the sector, um, the Mm -hmm. industry, uh, the industry of HIV, as I call it. Um, And... As I got older, I got more and more frustrated with uh, the lack of conversation that was taking place within my friendship groups, and HIV had just not um, was just not being talked about anymore. And I got more and more frustrated with uh, with that situation, with continuing to see my friends becoming positive. Um, with uh, some of the decisions that were being made by the Victorian AIDS Council at the time. And so I thought, uh, um, and I was the marketing manager of Australia's largest adult wholesale business. Um, So I was in a sex-positive environment, and yet um, I was finding these uh, sort of sex-negative 
um, um, stigma and discrimination around not only um, the, the the sex that gay men have, but I was frustrated to the to the nth degree by so many gay men apologising for their sexuality, and I just thought this is ridiculous. So I thought, how can people be expected to be responsible for their own sexual health and well-being when they're apologising for uh, the who they are? So that's when I decided to undergo radio training and um, launched my program Hide and Seek, which was uh, a show, well, is still on air. Hide and Seek is your show for exploring sex, sexuality and self. Um, it uh, was pretty controversial at the time. The station had never had a show about sex and sexuality, even though we... Really? I mean, it's, it's bizarre that... Australia's only gay and lesbian radio station had never had a show about sex and sexuality. So, um, and I also, in my program uh, proposal, I said uh, that I wanted an exemption from the language policy of the station, which had a very strict no swearing policy. Um, And they agreed to give me an exemption from that. Uh, They stuck me in an 11pm time slot on a Monday night. Uh, and I opened my first show with two sponsors who had never been with the station before. I think that was probably one of the uh, things that got me over the line was uh, a proposal that had two sponsors that had never been with the station. And um, a bit of cash. <laughs> and uh, the rest uh, just sort of exploded. I mean, I got better time slots. Uh, I got some great, fantastic co-hosts. Uh, and we started to tackle subjects that were um, important, I thought, in just the general conversation. And it's been amazing to watch the transformation within this organisation, now 23 years old, um, where people who would never even um, go anywhere near conversations around sex and sexuality now embrace those conversations in an adult way and in a respectful way and in a way that they can communicate on air without um, it being in any way offensive. And that has opened us, I think, as an organisation up to um, being far more accepting of the new landscape, which is um, Joy no longer is the gay and lesbian station. It is the LGBTIQ radio station. Yeah, right. And um, that changing landscape... Um, I think uh, it's been important for us to be having um, adult conversations about our sex and sexuality in that changing landscape. What do you think happened, if indeed something did happen, perhaps this newfound freedom to talk about sex and sexuality is indeed new, but did something happen between, say, the Grim Reaper era and when um, you started to become more and more frustrated that conversations weren't happening to sort of repress conversation or make it taboo? Did something happen? No, the, the, well, what happened was nothing was happening. Um, the, the likes of the Victorian AIDS Council, and they're not the only ones, uh, you know, other organisations, were telling us what to do. Um, they weren't connecting with community. They weren't engaging community. They were just simply preaching. And uh, those messages were not connecting. And... You know, also, the landscape had changed where people who were HIV positive were now living. They were on antiretrovirals, they were living healthy, and those that had been fighting the good fight in the early days were just exhausted and wanted to um, just live life uh, quietly and uh, disappear into the ether. And I don't uh, begrudge them for that, but... At the same time that they'd stopped that fight, uh, there was no one, I guess, sort of pushing or driving the conversations. And so we as a community stopped talking. And um, uh, I think it was just a snowball of um, uh, policy at the time, um, community at the time. uh, And the fact that people were living, not dying, meant that we weren't rattling the cage like we were before. I think the premise of the question I'm about to ask sounds prejudiced, so I think you'll understand that I'm asking you for the answer rather than, than what it actually 
suggest. But how does someone who is so um, articulate, informed about sexual health, including HIV, um, actually acquire HIV? Huh. This is the situation you found yourself in, I guess. Yeah, and and don't it's it's a great question, and it's a question I you know I have asked myself a million times. Um, and the simple answer to that is, I'm not perfect. Um, you know, uh, condoms might be the perfect f- solution to perfect people who have sex perfectly every time, uh, but I'm not perfect. And, uh, you know, that's the simple, um, simple answer. And mm-hmm. anyone who thinks they are perfect, good luck to you. But just be careful um, because uh, the minute that you're not perfect might just be the time. So, um, and, and that speaks to discrimination and uh, stigma as well. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I have had come up to me and say, you know, deep down I knew I was going to become HIV positive one day because I used to be so revolting towards people who were positive and I just knew it would come back to bite me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know... I have no answer to that, um, other than it, it's a warning to to everyone who discriminates in this space. Yeah, I think we'll definitely get back to the topic of, of discrimination. Uh, tell me if this is something you're not comfortable recalling, but can you tell me about um, you know the occasion when when you found out that you were HIV positive? Sure, I, I vividly remember it, um, mm. partly because. Um, I had always been uh, fairly rigorous in my three-monthly testing regime, um, and I considered that, you know, considering the, the sex that I had, the amount of sex that I had, the, um, uh, the type of person that I was, it was uh, responsible for me to get tested every three months. So that just became routine. And World AIDS Day was always a a sort of marker for my routine because uh, of the show. Um, We would always encourage on World AIDS Day uh, the listeners to um, get tested, particularly on that day or or on and around that day. And so one year, my co-host and I, uh, we were appearing on the Federation Square stage for World AIDS Day. And we'd worked, uh, we'd planned ahead and, and got tested earlier that morning so that when we were on stage, we could show the Band-Aid uh, to, as to where we were tested earlier that day. It wasn't until I got off stage um, and, you know, gave the spiel about testing that I thought, that's probably a really stupid thing to do. What happens if in 10 days' time when you go back for your results and you become positive? Well, that wasn't the case that year, but uh, in 2013, when I was coordinating World AIDS Day Worldwide, which was a global conversation around HIV uh, that was streamed live around the world and marked the countdown to AIDS 2014 being held here in Melbourne, um, I was coordinating this massive uh, monumental event for uh, the station. And so I thought, a couple of weeks out, I thought, oh, World AIDS Day, um, I better get tested. So um, did that and then went back for my results 10 days before World AIDS Day and uh, there was two people in the, uh, in the consulting suite, not just the, the mm. usual nurse and I thought, this is strange and that's when I was told. So mm. I had no symptoms. 50% of people uh, who are diagnosed positive have no symptoms um, or, or, or nothing that they can, you know, put down to as being out of the ordinary. Um, and yet some people uh, have horrendous uh, symptoms um, and, and some people, uh, you know, can even have permanent damage from some of the symptoms. So, right. Um, just because I had none um, uh, meant that it was picked up on a routine test. And yeah. it also meant, because I had a long history of testing, um, it meant that I knew uh, the window period from my last test uh, meant that I'd got it early and that the uh, greatest uh, number of options were open to me because I had been routinely testing. Yeah, for sure. 
And, and what, what was your reaction? I mean, how do you respond to, to the news when someone tells you that? Uh, it was like being whacked in the stomach with a baseball bat and a pillow over your stomach. It was like this huge thud that just took the wind out of me. And my first, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, how soon can I start on treatment? Um, the nurse said, can we at least do your second round of bloods before we do talk about that? <laughs> Which was a fair comment. But um, now um, you are put on treatment uh, when you get diagnosed. I was at that, um, that period just before uh, that that was standard practice. And uh, for the rest of that day, I was just um, walking around in a bit of a daze, like um, totally in a daze, you know, mm-hmm. and, and started asking myself questions, you know, you've got such a big profile in advocating for staying negative and sexual health and now you find yourself in this space um, and in 10 days' time you've got to coordinate this massive global conversation about HIV and then in six months' time you've got, you know, all of the world scientists and and doctors coming to town and you've been looking forward to this as an opportunity, you know, career-wise and all that sort of stuff. Um, And... So I rang um, my good friend who's the CEO of Living Positive Victoria, Brent Allen, and his advice to me was um, you can't tell anyone for three months at least. Which, And he was really, really firm on that. And, you know, I was expecting some sort of um, consoling, gooey hug, um, but he was like, almost rude in how firm he was in saying you cannot tell a soul for three months and that's not the right advice for everyone by any means uh, but it was the right advice for me because he knew that uh, I have a microphone uh, and that <laughs> uh, with that comes a certain amount of responsibility and he was looking after my own well-being in a space where I needed to come to terms with it and live with it before I could start advocating again for others. And so that period um, from my diagnosis right through till after AIDS 2014, um, I still managed to do all of the work that I needed to do, but there was a disconnect between uh, what... Uh, I was, the, I just felt a little disconnected from from um, being able to, you know, give my all. I mean, um, whilst I talk openly about sex and sexuality, um, my private life is still my private life, mm. and uh, that, yeah, presented some challenges. And um, it wasn't until. Uh, April 2015 uh, that I went public with my HIV status and did so in a big way. Um, I'd spoken to the CEO of the Victorian AIDS Council, Simon Ruth, who I have a tremendous relationship with, and I said to him, um, in fact, when I told him uh, that I was positive, uh, it had been 12 months and he'd come in for an interview and I said, just before we get started, there's something I need to tell you. And I told him uh, that I was positive and he started to cry, which, um, yeah, sort of kind of took me a bit by surprise. And um, I said to him, I want to go public with my status uh, and I want to do it in such a way that it has impact to create change. And I said, the government's lack of action in regards to PrEP might be the perfect avenue for me to say, uh, if PrEP was approved in Australia at the same time it was approved in the United States, 
I wouldn't be positive today. I would have been on it, um, and I would not be positive today. And so we put together a video campaign, which um, went online and uh, challenged the government to step up to the plate and get it approved. And whilst it's approved, it's still not on the PBS, so it's not yeah. as readily available as it should be. And um, that is a very poor reflection on our federal health system. Um, it took 10 years for us to get rapid testing approved in this country. It's now five years uh, that we've been fart-assing around with PrEP, and these sorts of delays are inexcusable in a time where uh, it continues to, uh, uh, you know, get... This country will, every single year, gets at least 1,100 new diagnoses. Yeah. I can't uh, fathom the frustration that must fill you with when the government or even in some situations, like with the, the listing on the PBS, um, corporations sort of fail the community and, and put other, you know, people's health at risk. It, it's almost at a point where you think, at what point do we make them culpable? Now, that doesn't in any way take uh, away responsibility of the individual. But individuals need to have the greatest amount of options available to them and why in this country with the world's best health system that we supposedly have, we aren't at the forefront of this sort of stuff and that we are not only a year or so behind, but we are five and ten years behind in some of this stuff is simply reprehensible. Yeah. Tell me about how your life has changed and it could be in terms of health or it could be in terms of relationships and work since your diagnosis in 2014? Uh, hmm. If indeed it has changed. Well, it, it has. I mean, it, it's changed in uh, the sense that, you know, I, I take a pill every day. Um, I uh, am mindful of um, my health and well-being, perhaps more than I was before. Uh, I go to my quarterly appointments with my doctor and have the, the full suite of um, tests done. I guess um, one thing we don't talk about often enough is the amazing mental health benefits of getting an undetectable diagnosis. So you've started mm -hmm. treatment, and when your doctor says you've now reached um, undetectable, um, that is, to a positive person, the, um, that is the antidote to a positive diagnosis and sure. gives you so much uh, relief knowing that you cannot pass the virus on to somebody else but also knowing that the virus is not replicating in your system and that inflammation is not damaging your system. It means that um, you're as good as anyone else and in fact uh, one of the messages that we don't get out as enough is that you're far more likely to catch HIV from a negative person who has been tested mm. three months or more ago and has had sex than you are from someone who's positive and undetectable. Sure. Simple as that. Yeah. And we just don't communicate yep. that very well. Mm. Absolutely. Have you faced um, discrimination whether that's, or stigma, whether that's you know, bullying or name-calling or something more subtle since you've become public about your status? The comments online uh, that accompanied the article that uh, was my public outing were many and varied. Uh, for the year 2015, it was the most... Um, that article got more engagement than any other article on uh, Star Observer's website. Um, and about 10% of the comments were um, either personal or you know, and negative or you know somehow discriminatory um, but what what amazed me more was how many of the comments were simply factually incorrect like mm. how uh, the base level of education and information that I thought was standard for gay men that every gay man knew at least this 
wasn't the case. Um, you know, it, it's extraordinary how many people are uninformed or ill-informed, and um, that's pretty sad. Um, as far as uh, discrimination and stigma is concerned, not really. I mean, and in saying that, you know, I'm an ambassador for the Enough Stigma campaign, and yeah. uh, I am very, very mindful of the stigma that some people do receive. And I know that some people, um, it, it seems to be almost relentless. Mm. I, I don't know whether it's because of my public profile or whether it's um, because you know I. I own what I am and what I've got and who I am. Um, but I don't experience that much stigma at all. Um, and that's partly because I think of my attitude. I don't hide it. Um, I don't hide mm. the the fact that I've got it. I don't talk about it all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, it's certainly something that I won't allow others to have the power in that space. And I think if you choose to take that option, um, your resilience uh, can outdo any stigma that comes mm. towards you. I think it comes back to, um, you know, learning to live with 13 years of bullying in Bendigo, mm. um, that uh, that sort of shit just is like water off a duck's back. I, was, I said something very similar to... Oh, to Harry, you would know Harry McNulty yeah, yeah, yeah. the other day. Yeah. And I, I posed to him this idea that inherently the experience of an LGBTI person was in some ways a damaged one or one of being a victim, which carries with it certain negative connotations, I know. But what do you think of that? That because of you know, social attitudes and so forth, you know, it's going to be a, a tough ride at some point, no matter what. I wholeheartedly agree. And what is inspiring in the HIV space, I think, is the degree to which uh, people that are newly diagnosed or have been diagnosed, say, in the last uh, five years, the degree to which they, they're prepared not to play that victim card mm. and uh, to live their lives fully with the tools that they have, um, with the tremendous medications that we now have available, with the information we have now available, um, and also with new tools like the My Life Plus app as well. These are things that are putting the power back into the individual's um, space, and they're, they're not putting up with any of that bullshit, and they're not um, uh, allowing that to get on top of them. I mean, it's... Exciting to see the change in the sector as well, um, to be one that is about individual empowerment and not about uh, playing the victim card. I don't for a minute discount the damage that um, has been done to those who've been living long-term with HIV um, and what they've been through. I don't uh, want to take away from uh, the... Uh, care and the need that we must do as a community to care for them. But, um, and I hope should at any point in time, I need to um, reach out to, to that care platform that it's there for me as well. But in the interim, um, I'm much more focused on living well and lifting others up to live well um, than to play around in the cesspit of um, um, other people's issues. Hmm. And for the people who are perhaps those ill-informed or um, uneducated, what is the status quo now? So you said before it's a pillar day, of course. There's tools like My Life Plus, which help monitor your health, I guess. Now, what, what's the, the status quo on a day-to-day -day basis for someone living with the virus? Someone diagnosed today uh, will be offered and um, uh, instantly um, to go on treatment, which means that uh, they will have um, the virus um, reduced straight away um, 
it will mean that the inflammation will not long-term have the damage that it has been um, doing to someone who isn't on treatment. Um, it means that their health outcomes today are as good as anyone else. In fact, there's a certain argument to suggest that their health outcomes might even be better because they have regular visits to the doctor and have the full screening of, of um, you know, bloods and all of that monitored on a far more regular basis so that anything that does come along is picked up earlier and can be jumped on. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's still early days, but I would say in 20 years' time we'll actually see uh, people who um, have been... Uh, unless the culture of particularly men changes regarding um, accessing uh, doctor's visits. But if if that stays the same, um, we might see uh, people uh, with HIV actually having better health outcomes because mm. they are looked after and they are monitored. Do you think that could mean actually having a, a longer life expectancy than people who don't? Well, the life expect expectancy outcomes are... Um, equal to that of those um, now who who aren't HIV positive. I mean, this is all um, conducive to looking after yourself and you know, eating well and exercising and you know doing all the standard stuff. Um, and so the health out or the life expectancy uh, is certainly the same as as anyone else. Um, I think if you made those changes about your uh, diet and exercise and and also adhere to your medications and your doctor's visits, um, it makes for reason that um, all things being equal, you might actually end up ahead. Yeah, it, which is, I think, a, a fascinating way of posing it to, to people who are ill-informed or... or yeah. ill <laughs> and, and who won't go to the doctor uh, when they really should. Well, maybe that's the message to get people tested is, you know, get tested, you'll live longer. I'm not sure if I well, picked that one up. But. No, well, you, you've touched on a sore point with me. I mean, our testing um, regime in this country is far below what it should be. Um, our government advice for testing once every 12 months um, was, in my opinion, uh, criminal. Uh, we should have been testing every three months if you were gay. And if you have more than one sexual partner in a six-month period, then you should be tested every three months. That's never been the message. And even now we're not saying it um, like we should. But not only should gay men, regardless, get tested every three months, but we should have a national testing week where we get Charlie Pickering and um, Chrissy Swan and all of that to normalise testing within the entire community so that uh, we can, one, get those who are undiagnosed uh, treated and on, and on treatment. Um, up to a third of positive people in this country don't even know that they're living with it. Yep. Um, so, and possibly more. So, you know, that's, that's like anywhere from five to 10,000 people who uh, don't even know that they've got HIV. Now, if we can get them tested and on treatment and we keep regular treatment uh, and normalise regular... Uh, reg keep testing regular and normalise testing, then we then and only then have we got a chance to actually start to see uh, the level of new diagnoses drop in this country. I mean, PrEP will make great inroads into that because, you know, you, you should get tested every three months when you're on PrEP. You, it's the same regime if you're on PrEP uh, as as I'm on. You take a pill a day and you get tested every three months. Sure. Um, and, uh, but, you know, when we see that the largest growth sector of new uh, infections, as far as cohorts is concerned, is amongst the heterosexual community, well, you know, there's alarm bells ringing and we should start uh, to do something about it. We need a national testing week. We need to normalise testing, and it needs to be out in the main mainstream. And we need to bling AIDS. Say so that we need to bling. <laughs> we need to bling AIDS. You know, there's a reason Charlize Theron is the UN AIDS ambassador, right? Mm. There is a reason for that. There's a reason why AIDS 2014 is called the circus. Um, it's because it 
and, and look at the advancements that AIDS 2014 brought to this country. Mm. We saw decriminalisation of HIV in this state. We saw PrEP in the conversations. We saw HIV rapid testing finally approved. Um, we saw treatment at diagnosis finally come into play. All of these things happened because the circus came to town. And if it didn't, we'd still be arguing for rapid testing. We need to get home testing approved in this country. You know, that's been approved in various countries for years um, so that people can regularly test at home. Um, until these things start to come into play, we're not going to see a reduction in new diagnoses. And there are countries in this world that have seen dramatic decreases in new diagnoses because they've got it right. Hmm. I spoke to Mark Duvet earlier this afternoon because <laughs> he is a, um, an advocate for uh, self-testing or home testing, especially for people living in regional areas. Yep. And, uh, yeah, he talked about the possibility of that making testing more accessible and, and I guess, getting more blanket coverage of, of, uh, of the community. Yeah, I spoke to Which Ma- I thought was interesting. spoke to Mark uh, at Ashham last week and uh, oh, right. he, uh, yeah, he and I had a good chat. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, he's very good at uh, throwing curveballs and this is his latest one. And he's right, right. you know. Um, it's, it's just, again, we're, we're finding ourselves behind countries who are our equivalents and uh, that's inexcusable. Why we have to sit back and, and take um, second best in this country is beyond my comprehension. No doubt. Hey, back to discrimination for, for just one moment, and I know you said that you haven't really felt it particularly pertinently, but what about in terms of um, sexual partners? Because I think that's one way we hear about discrimination against positive people, and it's that uh, you know negative people have, I guess, uh, in some instances, a fear of you know, catching the illness from them. Is that something that you've had to encounter? Uh, occasionally, but again, I mean, uh, I um, disclose on you know, my various uh, platforms that I use, um, and so that sorts the wheat from the chaff pretty quickly. Um, and I think... Uh, the profile probably helps too. <laughs> well, the profile also sorts uh, people out pretty quickly as well, and, and that's... You know, I learned early on that if I was very clear about what I was on about, and that includes my status, um, then uh, it would, uh, you know, anyone that got through the screening process was there for the right <laughs> reasons, you know. Um, and I look at, you know, I've, I've got friends who talk about the discrimination that they f- uh, get from their online dating apps and stuff. And I look at their profiles and I think, well... <clears throat> you're not really making it very clear as to where you're at. Um, And so in that ambiguity, um, you know, you can see why some people might react in a way that is uh, not particularly sensitive um, when they're they're confronted with it. And I'm not making excuses for them, uh, but, um, you know, you could protect yourself from that crap by just being very clear from the outset. And, and I'm all for encouraging people to stand proud with their status, whether they're positive or negative, um, and similarly be clear about what they want because, um, you know, then we all know. You there? Hello? Hello. Hello. I don't know what happened. No, I don't Disappeared. Know. Yes, just went poof. And then I did hang up eventually. Uh, now, where were we? You were talking about there. you've got friends who talk to you about discrimination, they say. Yeah, no, I've got friends who uh, I, I look at their profiles and I think, um, you know, perhaps the reason you're experiencing uh, reactions like mm. you 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 get is because you're not clear in who you are. Yeah, okay. You know, and yep. uh, I think being comfortable with disclosing um, is something that takes time. I get why people don't do it, but I find that um, 
you know, it, it sorts things out pretty quick. Hmm. Yeah. No, hey, I won't take too much more of your time, but I'll quickly ask you about two things, and you can t- tell me which one you want to talk about first. I want to hear a little bit about the app and, and um, what it's you know doing for you and why you like it. And then also, I guess, you know, the big question is, will there be a cure and what would a cure mean? <laughs> okay, I'll, can I take both? <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, the app is My Life Plus, um, available at mylifeplus.com.au, is an app that was uh, donated, for want of a better word, by uh, Vive Healthcare um, in con- and in consultation with the National Association of People Living with HIV and NAPWA. And they've really got to uh, the core of um, how best we can look after our health and well-being. And it, when you open it up, it doesn't open up with, um, uh, so have you taken your pill today? It, it opens up and says, how are you feeling? And that then be, can become a journal entry, so you can actually track how you're feeling. And okay. um, so, if you know, I only have to go to the, my doctor every four months. And so... When I go to my doctor, I might be feeling fine, but it doesn't mean that I haven't had a you know six-week downer period or something. And if I've got evidence of that and can show my doctor when and when that occurred, um, you know that can become something that can be monitored if it needs to be over time. Similarly, you know you can put all of your CD4 counts in and your viral loads and all those sorts of blood results, so you can track those over time. And it's got the pill reminders and all that sort of stuff built into it as well. But, I mean, this is a free app that can help you manage your health and well-being, including things like, um, you know, if someone is discriminating you and you are facing stigma, you know, there's great little articles and that that are built into the app that uh, you can access and just, you know, give yourself a, re- a refresher about uh, getting through those sort of tough, mm-hmm. tough periods. So it's all in the one little thing and it sits in the in your phone and it's pretty amazing so yeah yeah. these two messages about i guess resilience like we've talked about but also you know giving people who are living positive the power to manage their own situation i think they're yeah sort of some central messages and that seems to be what the app does it puts it you know in your control yeah it, it puts you in control of your own health and well-being and and like when you go to the doctor and you get given your results you want to hear that your CD4 level is um, nice and high and that your viral load is nice and low. Um, and what, you know, if you hear those numbers, you just want to know that you're undetectable and you've got a high CD4 and then you just tune out. But if you can put those numbers into, into your phone, you know, over two, three, five years, you can actually track where you're going and if you're heading in a direction that might need to be addressed. Um, and mm. that can uh, that information is power, for sure. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And what about the idea of a cure? I heard Edwina Wright talking the other day that she thinks it will come, but it may well be in two lifetimes time. That probably doesn't offer you any comfort, but what does, uh, what does the possibility of that mean to people who are living with HIV? You know, they've been talking about a cure for 30 years now and um, uh, I know that there is some tremendous work being done by scientists right around the world all competing against each other and all telling us that they're working in harmony. Um, That's all well and good, but um, I'm not holding my breath for it. Um, I hope that, uh, that we can get... Things like, um, you know, injectable medication so that instead of having a pill a day, we can have a a shot in the arm by the doctor every three or four months. Um, Those sorts of things will make tangible difference to people's lives in the short term. Um, And, uh, you know, I I want there to be a cure, but um, I want there to be a cure that is accessible to all who need it and um, that there is protection for all who need it as well. Um, you know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't read all of the, you know, every day there's another article on, on the cure. 
um, I don't take much notice of them anymore um, because uh, they're all attacking it for the right reasons from different angles and, you know, one day when they're all on the same page, we might have a cure. Until then, um, I'm more focused in the here and now. Wonderful. Hey, congratulations hey. on your award too, by the way. Oh, thank you. It was uh, it was lovely. I, I only knew a couple of days before I was going because I had to be persuaded to go to an ATM that I've, for an organisation of which I was not a member. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, they had to tell me, so I think I would go. But um, yeah, it was lovely. Well, and they it, spoke very kindly. Well deserved and um, good stuff. It's uh, You should be acknowledged for the good work that you're doing, so good stuff. It does seem like it's a different world up here now to what it might have been 45 years ago. I hope so. God, I hope so. Thank you. I think we're going to run it on, on December 1, of course, Thursday 1. So. Oh, and I'll send you a couple of pics too. Perfect. That would be great, whichever one's yours. Well, thank you very much. And, no um, worries. If, I, if this turns into a podcast or something, I'll let you know. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Chop it up, do what you, do what you like. Make me sound good. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you so much. No worries. Thank you for your time. Very kind. Bye-bye. See you. Inside HIV, the podcast for positive people. Visit InsideHIV.net or download from iTunes. Made possible thanks to the Victorian AIDS Council, the AC Working Together, and Vive Healthcare Positive Action Community Grants. Follow us on Twitter at HIV Podcast and like us on Facebook. Inside HIV, the podcast for positive people.